Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to our podcast stream, FICC Focus, and the substream uh, Credit Crunch. This is our seventh episode, and it naturally follows from the previous one where we spoke about the banking crisis. Is the crisis done? And we would like to give you both a European and a US perspective this time. Now, we have our guest who we pre last, last time we had my you know, boss for a long time and my mentor, and now I have our current boss, uh, Noel Hebert, uh, who is the U.S. credit strategist and also FICC Director of Research at Bloomberg Intelligence. So welcome, Noel. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so I think given that the story started in the U.S., maybe we should start with that. Are we done with the regional banking crisis in the U.S.? Well, I mean, I think it's a, a bit of an unanswerable question, right? Because, I mean, if you go back to the crisis uh, of 07, 09, right? Everybody thought uh, Bear Stearns was the big to-do and then it kind of things settled down for quite a while and then obviously reemerged and got much more intense through sort of the the last part of the summer and into the early autumn of 2008. Uh, so so I think it's it would be premature to call an end to this. I think if you look at some of, uh, you know, the credit creation dynamics, which are obviously contracting sharply because depositor flows and all these other dynamics that are impacting the space, are still ongoing and we don't really have a, a sort of specific federal policy around guaranteeing deposits, et cetera. I think we're still in this sort of phase of figuring it out and seeing what happens. I think uh, earnings season being upon us, people are going to be very intently listening in on what the regional banks have to say, or even you know the big internationals in terms of what's happening to their book of business. You're probably going to see a lot more questions around those old to maturity assets, et cetera. So I would not uh, sort of go out on a limb and say we're done here. I would say we're sort of more in a pause phase as people stop to digest to figure out what the real impacts might be. How has uh, U.S. credit and particularly U.S. banking credit uh, done in the route and, and the recovery? Uh, not well. Better, but still not well. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, listen, I think, uh, you know, in the early phase, right, I mean, everything sold off because it wasn't just the U.S. regionals. Uh, You had obviously the impacts that were going on with Credit Suisse, which I know you'll probably talk about a little bit here. But, you know, I I think, you know, everything sort of sold off a bit and there were obviously repercussions, right? Because I think the, you know, when you start to think about derivative impacts, the big conversation now in the U.S., uh, is a little bit less about the banks, but a little bit more in terms of who the banks lend to, right? So, and I think commercial real estate is a big part of that. So, you know, it wasn't just the banks that blew out, but it was the REITs and, and some of these other names, or you talk about like the insurance companies with big hold to maturity portfolios, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of parts of the financial architecture got pinged, uh, got really ugly, uh, obviously around mid-March until you got some of the interventions uh, you know, and it's settled in some, but you still look at on ratio terms in terms of where financials trade relative to the rest of the corporate universe, they're still pretty historically wide. So, uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, uh, a multiplier effects, uh, you know, I look at it in terms of break evens, right? Spread relative to duration. 
And if I look at financials right now, they're about 1.1, in terms of ratio to to the rest of the corporate space, whereas historically, maybe you're trading like at, you know, 1.05. So we're discounted, but we're not sort of like at the extremes of of sort of a 1.2 times or 1.25 times that you would see in a real period of stress. Right. So continuing that conversation, as uh, Noel has mentioned, you know, the aftermath of Credit Suisse and its uh, ripples in Europe. So the main story for European credit was what happened to the 81 world, this contingent convertible universe. You know, the Swiss were the first to do COCOS. Uh, The COCOS then morphed into 81s, thanks to Basel III. Now, what has happened in the 81 world was we lost about 18 and a half, 19% uh, when the Credit Suisse Cocos were uh, 81s, were zero. In terms of performance or uh, outstandings? No, performance. Performance. Wow. So we, we were about 19, 19% down on the 81 market. It has recovered by about 7.5%. So there is still a, quite a while to go in that market. But the fact is now the 81 market knows that in case of any sort of regulatory intervention or, uh, you know, any uh, capital retrieval sort of uh, phenomenon, you are essentially the junior most. And that I that ensures that that full recovery is never going to happen in that world. So before uh, around like the third week of February, that's when the, the drop started. Uh, you're not going to get back to those levels. So there is probably there is probably another four or five percent upside, maybe, but that's about it. This is the eighty-one. So, so how do you think about risk premium in that space, right? I mean, because I think that's I, I mean, it's a really great point because it's kind of similar to, to how I think about the regional banks here, right? Where you know people are now looking at that space differently, right? So you're not going to go if you went from par to eighty, you're not going back to par because there's going to be an incremental risk premium that's going to be sticky in that marketplace. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, how do you think about it? Is that, you know, is that 100 basis points? Is that, you know, do, do you have sort of a framework around how you're thinking about it? I w- instead of putting a blanket number on it, I would like to think based on where the capitalization of each bank is. So if you are, if you're well above the threshold bank, then we can think in basis points, right? Like, uh, yeah, you can have an approximate level. Uh, on an average, and then probably that's where it will trade. But the ones that are closer to the thresholds, right, to the volatility thresholds, there the option is very much in the money for the regulator. I mean, if you call the regulator owns the option sort of, uh, then I don't think you can talk in basis points. Now, then we are talking points, right? Uh, <laughs> Ooh, so that means we're talking high yield. Yay! Yeah. No, it is much worse than high yield, right? In, in, high, <laughs> yield, in high yield, you will never be zeroed. I'm sorry to say, the for the 81 holders, you are worse than junk. No junk bond will be zeroed ever, right? While you guys, uh, well, I've I've owned some that have gotten pretty close over the years, but maybe the European that's market's because, a little bit different. That's, that way. Because, that's because you bought some really hairy credit, though. But the point <laughs> is, but the point is, you at least get a seat at the table. You know, there, there, there is a there is a of a civilized way. Uh, the way a junk restructuring happens in an 81, uh, you know, what do you call uh, impairment? You you get zero. You don't get a seat at the table because it's built into the contract. So yeah. 
so the way you price eighty ones, which are close to the thresholds, uh, the the credits that are not that healthy, uh, that's a different ball game. It's it becomes sort of a equity knockout. So, so I guess uh, you know the follow-on question of that, and and I, I don't mean to sort of uh, uh, you know sort of derail uh, the conversation here, but uh, I guess the the knock-on question of that would be right because you had a bunch of people that were participating in the claims market, going out and securing some of these claims on the Credit Suites stuff, uh, and presumptively are going to bring suit and try to get some sort of recovery out of it. Um, you know, is that something where you go, okay, well? maybe there'll be a settlement there or do you just think uh, they're going to hold fast to the contract language and chances are, depending on the domicile in which they file, whatever the suit is, it's probably not going to be friendly enough to, to sort of give them recoveries or. Uh, I am no banking expert on the, in terms of the legality of it, but if you look at prior uh, examples, right. When, when have been uh, banking subordinated debt impairments, so if you look at the Irish banking crisis, then if you look at the peripheral banking crisis, uh, Irish banking crisis at the Eurozone time, and then you had the peripheral crisis when the when Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain blew up. Uh, all the while, whenever the subject was knocked out, did they really get a seat at the table and did they get to you know file a lawsuit and win? Not really true. And this one, by the way, is contractual. So, I don't think, uh, I mean, a few cents might be thrown at it uh, to keep them quiet, uh, but I don't think there is much upset. Now, on that topic, where there could be a bit of upset and which has been seen in the market, in banks, is on the senior side. So, what has been realized is senior bank debt is money good. So, senior has rallied, uh, what do I say, more disproportionately compared to 81. Uh, although, although the, we need to we need to clarify that banking senior still underperformed corporate senior, uh, no doubt. Uh, but it did outperform subordinated debt. It did outperform eighty one. And where does banking senior stand now? Is it is almost as money good as uh, depositors in uh, in Europe uh, in terms of loss protection. You still bear quite a credit risk. But in terms of loss protection, uh, given the way the contracts have been designed, particularly for 81, uh, senior seems uh, to be credit event protected. Now, what does CDS say about it? So if you look at main versus senior financials, main versus senior financials used to trade like in a very tight range, around like 9 to 10 basis points. That has blown up to 30 during the crisis. Mm. And 30 has come down to 15 now. 15, as you can see, is very close to 10. Uh, <laughs> well, closer than 30 anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, is, I mean, uh, it's still half as good. much as high again, right? So, I mean... Well, remember, that's, okay. that's the differential, though. So, 15, I can see another probably 2-3 basis points upside if, uh, if you know, we draw the line under the crisis, but that's about it. You will still trade above the prior average. But you can see, banking senior has recovered most of the lost ground. Now, do you make a, a, a much out of, I mean, because I think sort of one of the other knock-ons, I mean, because we're talking, you know, a fair amount of derivative impacts here, but, you know, do you make much in terms of the conversation around, okay, well, because of the crisis, the the recession probabilities are higher because of, you know, maybe uh, banks, you know, as 
a whole sort of become more conservative in their lending standards. They know there's going to be sort of a, a firmer microscope in terms of what the balance sheets look like, et cetera. Yeah. So what the key story playing out in uh, European banking risk wise right now is, you know, after this Credit Suisse uh, story has been closed is the, uh, you know, CRE uh, exposures. Now, how commercial real that, estate for the uh, uninitiated, right? For the uninitiated, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, what what are the probabilities that are being priced in terms of recession right now? Uh, you know, good old days, it used to be, you know, 80%. 80% has fallen to about 50, went up to 60 during the crisis, and now it is back under 50%. So, uh, this is using, you know, economic data and economist forecasts on Bloomberg, yeah, the ECFC function. So, mm -hmm. how aggressive are uh, the markets pricing in recession probabilities given European banking risk? It's quite sanguine right now. It's, uh, it is back to what it was. In fact, it's better than what it was uh, pre-banking crisis. If you look at, uh, if you look at the forecast for the individual countries, how many, I mean, IMF came up with forecasts, for example. Obviously, the UK is the basket case. How much of that is just because of Brexit, though, right? I mean, it seems like they're always getting the short end of the stick, regardless of what analysis gets done. It's like a, the perennial punishment for uh, opting I mean, out. No, but you need to realize it is like a, a short annuity, right? You are short every year. It is not just a one-time shot because every year there is the trade impact. So effectively, the UK is probably, I mean, I'm no UK economist, but effectively the UK is probably losing uh, 0.5 to 1%, I mean, depending on a bull or a bear time, uh, 0.5 to 1% of growth. And that is what is showing up in the IMF forecast. The UK, G, in the G20, worst uh, growth rate, 2023. Germany, tiny down, but rest of the European countries are up in 2023. So, uh, it sort of plays in line with uh, what is showing up on the ECFC. So, a pretty sanguine outlook is being priced uh, in forecast, and I think that is what is showing up in credit as well. We've rallied. And it doesn't seem, uh, and it doesn't seem anywhere close to being uh, crisis pricing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things in the U.S., uh, you know, from a comparable standpoint, right? It's it's sort of like the the tug of war between nominal yields that sort of are still hovering at levels that people haven't seen for yeah. for quite some time. Yep. Versus the risk pricing component, right? Which is like spread. If you're looking at whether it's high yield or investment grade, you're sort of in the, wow, it's kind of a sloppy market backdrop, but it's not a recession. It's not sort of high risk. It's sort of just, you know, a risk off phase within the broader context. But, you know, it, you know, because of, you know, you do have coupons sitting around five and change percent in investment grade and over 8% in high yield, you know, it's really hard to sort of disentangle which piece of, you know, should spreads be trading incrementally tighter just because there's going to be so much coupon demand uh, at these levels? People are sort of a lot, obviously a lot more eager to sort of print duration if they can get a, a five and a half and a six on sort of some longer tendered paper when they haven't seen that coupon in a decade or whatever else. Uh, so I, I think it's, you know, from my standpoint, right? I mean, I think if you look at sort of the macro context and, and I think the there's probably a little bit more consensus that maybe we head into a recessionary environment. Uh, in the U.S., certainly among our economics team here, but 
you know, I think if we get there, I'm not sure that there's going to be, just given the inflation context as well, where I'm not quite sure where treasuries get down to, but spreads, I think, uh, do sort of yeoman's work to help sort of keep the coupons elevated. Because, I mean, I think if, you know, if we're 130, 140, wherever we are in, in investment grade today versus, you know, maybe you'd expect a 180 to 200 type of thing in a recessionary backdrop and high yield or sort of high fours versus, you know, six, eight, 1,000 basis points that you might see, depending on the nature of the any kind of recession, you know, we've got a long way to roll, uh, which is why I think when we came into the year, at least in the U.S. again, uh, you know, our excess return expectations, so that, that sort of risk component of performance, I mean, we were pretty... I don't want to say negative, but we were sort of like neutral to modest losses from excess returns in both asset classes and looked for treasuries to really be the driver. And, and that's frankly what we've kind of gotten so far. So, But, you know, we, we still have like about seven and a half months and the key driver. Has, <laughs> and the key, uh, well, you know, forecasts usually only last a month and a half. So so I'm good. I, I, I've made it four months so far. Yeah. But the key story in on both sides of the Atlantic remains: what do rates do? So, yep. and then we can get on to the the credit numbers. So, before we get to yields, your thoughts on the Fed? The market is pricing in no more hikes and cuts. Are you in that camp? Uh no. I mean, I think we at least I think there really there's a lot of back and forth right now in terms of what happens in May. Uh, you know, obviously, we're talking today on, uh, you know, April 12th at a little over 9 a.m. Eastern. So we had just gotten the CPI print, uh, which, you know, uh, the core came in line effectively, but the headline number came in a little bit soft. So obviously, you're going to have people sort of repricing uh, the probabilities of some sort of rate hike a little bit lower. I think the fact that uh, uh, we're at least on pause, circling back to sort of the regional bank conversation, uh, we're at least on pause for a banking crisis, raises the probability that we at least get the one more hike and then we'll sort of see where the Fed goes from there. I just don't know that their path to cutting is going to be as rapid uh, as sort of the market's anticipating. And, and a lot of that just really comes down to what sort of macroeconomic backdrop we are. And um, I think, you know, from a more sort of theoretical standpoint, right, the way I tend to think about it is, if you think back to the financial crisis, you know, the Fed spent the better part of two or three years really trying to convince the market that they were there to sort of backstop stability and and sort of financial stability. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you remember, like in the early days, you know, the market would fight it. Like every time the Fed would come out, like it would, you know, quickly rally, but then everything would unwind and maybe unwind a little bit worse than where it started and the Fed would come back to the market. So it really wasn't until maybe like 2013 uh, yep. So we had just gotten, yeah, I think 2012 was the Draghi, whatever it takes. And then 2013, we we're like into Operation Twist or whatever it was at that point, uh, where the market started going, okay, the Fed really does have our back. And then they started compressing those cycles for Fed intervention, where it was, you know, first it would take several months to play out. And then it was, you know, a month and then it was weeks and then it was days, right? I mean, Every time the Fed reaction function grew shorter and shorter because the market volatility, you know, the market would sort of get volatile enough that the Fed's like, oh, no, we got to we got to intervene. I think we're now sort of in that opposite end of that where the Fed has to basically unteach that behavior that it taught to the market over the last decade plus 
And I just think it's going to be sloppy for the next couple of years because the Fed's going to have to sort of hold its ground in the face of market pressures to sort of convince them that, no, you know, we really do care about the inflation mandate. Now, do they? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't really, I'm not yet convinced, right? I'm, I'm in that camp of people that have to be untrained after having yeah. been trained over the last and 10 also, years. And also at what cost, right? And yeah. we've, already see, we've already seen one major episode of when the Fed tries to do uh, what is supposedly the right thing at that time. I mean, when they tried to do the right thing in 2007, 2008, we know what happened. Uh, and when they tried to do the right thing, now we know yeah. what happened. So, so mapping that onto Europe, by the way. So we have a situation where the central banks in Europe, particularly the ECB, is behind the curve. The market is expecting the ECB to do two more rate hikes at the min. Uh, and we've got a QT program uh, going on at the same time. Uh, we also have the BOE. The BOE is ahead of the ECB. Uh, the BOE is expected to go at least once. And there is a pretty aggressive QT program by the BOE. Now, unlike the Fed in uh, US credit, uh, in Europe, both the central banks have a hefty presence in the credit markets. The ECB much bigger than uh, the BOE, as we've pointed out in prior podcasts. The ECB started QT this month. This month means in March. And in March, they unwound by $2 billion. Now, $2 billion might be might look small compared to $390 billion corporate credit. Look pretty good uh, in my bank account. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the start of a very long process. Now, that is essentially how they were supposed to be doing like about half of redemptions not replaced. I think they're doing a bit more than that. Uh, the BOE, though, also did $2 billion reduction, which compared to its very tiny holding of, you know, about 9 becoming $7 billion, is at a very, very fast clip, which is why sterling credit is underperforming euro credit. Yeah, I think so, it's interesting, right? Because in the U.S., obviously, there's there's a little bit of balance sheet unwind as well. But it's... it's um... It'll be, I think every central bank right now, because they had spent so many years in sort of an accommodative stance have, you know, it's going to be a process, right? And, and you know, whether they have the stomach to sort of wade through the volatility, that, that will almost certainly be a derivative of it, um, I think is sort of the great unknown, right? I do. I think, you know, their hands have been burnt already. So in trying to do... Uh, take the inflationary regime uh, or rather inflationary regimen uh, to its limit, uh, I don't think uh, they would go down that road because now financial stability is a, uh, is, is sort of an, what do I say, unofficial uh, mandate of the central banks, even though it's just growth and inflation which are official, financial stability is also part of I don't think they will stretch the inflation uh, pill uh, to the to its limit. Yeah, no, I, I think you've already seen, I think Australia and Canada have gotten a little bit more conservative. Now, they obviously have a lot of mortgage debt that's floating rate exposed. So there's, you know, the impacts there are probably a little bit more immediate and a little bit more problematic to the households. But uh, same, same here, in, uh, same here in, uh, in Europe, by the way, in the continent. Uh, you got quite a bit of uh, floating rate, unlike you guys in the US. Uh, the the ABS, 
I mean, the mortgage market is not a long duration market like you guys, right? Uh, and also it tends to be a credit product, uh, unlike yours being a rates product. Uh, so because the banks do take uh, the credit risk because there's no wrapping. So that brings us to where are, uh, I mean, given all this saga and uh, the banking crisis and so on, where are US credit fundamentals now? Default, <laughs> default fallen angels rating yeah. action. So, so I mean, I think we've seen, uh, you know, certainly let's start with the defaults, right? So I think, uh, you know, in the early part of the year, uh, we've started to see a little bit of a tick up in sort of default activity, right? Which is not uh, entirely unexpected. Um, it's, I think we're sort of not quite 2% now uh, in terms of our default rate. That's something that I think uh, we grow uh, towards 4% over the course of the year, uh, particularly as, you know, this banking crisis sort of ripples through and sort of the, the second order impacts of that. Uh, and I actually think, you know, I, I'm a little uh, uh, more in the pessimist camp where I think, you know, and, and we talk to a lot of people in our own State of Distress podcast, and obviously they have a leaning because the, the nature of the podcast is distressed. But, um, you know, there, there's sort of a sense that you've got a Fed tightening into sort of a slowing uh, macroeconomic backdrop, and there, there's a lot less wiggle room than there has been in, in the better part of two decades for the Fed to sort of turn hyper-accommodative. So maybe we get something more like a traditional cycle like we saw in, you know, the, the early 2000s or the early 1990s, et cetera, which is uh, one way of saying, you know, versus like a hyper-compressed six or nine-month type of distress cycle where lots of things happen really shortly, but then it rapidly recovers. Maybe this is sort of this rolling sort of stress environment where, you know, it just sort of hops from sector to sector to sector, and that takes the better part of two or three years to play out. So that's more the camp that I've been in for quite some time, uh, which means that over the course of 2024, you could see default rates tick up towards, you know, seven, eight percent. Um, so, so I'm relatively uh, negative in terms of that component. I'll caveat by saying typically distressed or defaults tend not to be a huge detractor to actual performance from an index standpoint, just because you're talking okay. bonds that started at 40 cents on the dollar, trading down 20 cents on the dollar, and, and the weightings are pretty small. But uh, beyond that, I think ratings activity has been uh, incrementally turning negative, the, the caveat being sort of at the crossover space, right? So we've you know, the, the falling angels rising star thing has been relatively well balanced, but on net, uh, if you're looking at just broad ratings activity, it's been negative. I expect that'll continue to remain the case, uh, as we move through the course of the year. And, and as always with ratings activity, high yields going to be a lot more active than investment grade. Uh, and then, you know, uh, I think, uh, what was the first uh, question again? No, I think you broadly answered. Let's switch to... Oh, good. So <laughs> let's, let's go to Europe. <laughs> let's go to Europe. So, so in contrast with uh, with the US where it is very easy to go to Delaware, uh, in Europe first, you then even otherwise, not just index, even otherwise, uh, default count tends to be a lot less. Now people tend to restructure and the bonds generally tend to stay within the index. So that's just, that's the background. Now, how many have we seen? We managed to see one bond, one name default finally in the index, Foodco Bondco. The bond still hasn't exited the index. April 15th uh, is when the grace period ends. So hopefully the bond will exit and we'll have a official default exit. <laughs> so yeah, because we haven't had a default for two years in the index. No, it's not a joke. Pretty sanguine. We've been through this 
full uh, you know commodity crisis inflation uh, high recession probabilities and so on and we've got one now in terms of candidates as we flagged in our first default podcast uh, we have five names triple c minus and below now if you believe that the rating agencies are very good at catching potential future candidates we got five now if you believe markets are correct we saw thanks to this banking crisis the default the distressed share of the index go up uh, that's about like three and a half ish percent right now so we probably are going to get some candidates from that list that's what the market is pricing in but the stress share has actually come down because of this the, uh, the follow-up rally so in terms of junk stress numbers are fine in terms of junk distress there is about three and a half i probably think a half of that will probably default and the peak we are going to get in 2024 index by the way so index default rate will probably be about 1.8 percent in 2024 just to give you context it's so boring yeah i know <laughs> i know uh, well 1.8 percent was the peak in the pandemic index default rate so that's yeah. default in terms of this uh, uh no rate, uh, ratings investment grade is still seeing a positive momentum so there are more than double the number of upgrades than downgrades on average across the three rating agencies uh, and if you map it onto the cusp the rising stars versus fallen angels march was balanced but if you look at the whole quarter you know the rising stars still edge fallen angels i think it will change but as of now it looks like you know investment grade and even at the cusp we are okay in junk though the rating actions have been more on the downside so there are a lot more there are about four downgrades for every three upgrades that's the ratio right now so that brings us to where do we think us credit valuations are and would you be be a buyer or a seller mm. right now? <laughs> well I, 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 are there any other options <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't say hold. You can't say hold. But by your <laughs> well, I think we're supposed to say hold because we were at Bloomberg Intelligence. But I know, I know. I, I, I well, listen. So, so from an investment grade standpoint, right? And I always like to break it down in terms of excess returns and total returns. I think, you know, sort of as I alluded to earlier in the call, I, I tend to, I, I still, I think, you know, excess returns and investment grade were, I think, twenty basis points through the first quarter of the year, right? Uh, and that would be a positive 20. I think excess returns remain problematic through the course of the year. That was when spreads were at 130. We're about 140 now. I do think we head wider on spread. And and that kind of, particularly when you start looking at the duration mechanics of the investment grade index, that kind of eliminates a fair amount of your excess return. So I look for the excess return piece to end up sort of flat-ish to maybe modestly negative in investment grade. But uh, because it's such a rates-driven market, uh, you know, total returns for the full year, you know, end up in the sort of high single digits type area, you know, six, seven, eight, nine percent, somewhere in that range. Uh, you know, and that's just really a function of, I think, sort of the the inflation cadence. I think I tend to lean towards the six to seven percent range. If you look at sort of some of the rates forecasts from our rate strategist Ira Jersey here in the U.S. Uh, you could probably get into the low double digits. I just don't know that uh, uh, rates collapse as quickly as that high yield. Uh, you know, I'm a little less sanguine there just because I think there's a lot more spread unwind to do. Uh, I think the 8% coupon has really kept people tethered into that asset class where we've seen stress, kind of similar to what you were referencing. I mean, it's really barbelled. 
Um, you've got like the really stressed, distressed type names, and then you got everybody else. And and so I don't think we've really seen that sort of broad based risk off sort of be sustained there. I think we can easily finish the year wide of 600 basis points, maybe a little bit more. And because you've only got, you know, a duration closer to four, um, you know, treasuries obviously become less a driver in that instance. And obviously with the shape of the curve as well, um, not as much benefit uh, from what may happen in the treasury space. So, you know, I think, you know, there I've looked for zero to four percent for the full year, uh, assuming a really modest detraction from the the pace of defaults. I don't see anything for the full year that sort of takes me off that path, um, which means from where we are today, you're basically looking at nothing through the rest of the year. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 you know, I, you and I tend to kind of take opposite ends. I tend to lean pessimistic. You tend to lean uh, optimistic. I just like, I look at the higher funding costs through the high yield space. I look at the deterioration in some of the leverage trends, the deterioration in interest coverage, you know, as people start to confront sort of the refinancing window or, or the maturity wall that starts kind of kicking up a little bit in 2024, I just think uh, it becomes increasingly problematic uh, uh, for my universe on the high yield side. Yeah, the I think the problem you, I mean, one is, you know, your own slant in general, but also I think the problem you have in the U.S. is the U.S. treasuries do pay a lot more. And, you know, given that, you know, uh, fund flows are generally driven by U.S. re-leads, you got an issue there. That is not the case here. So my argument to any credit detractor in Europe is what choice do you have? Do you want to be in rates? And rates are at least triple as volatile as credit, just FYI. So now do you want to be in rates, not get paid any excess, and you really don't know what what the bond will do, right? given how uncertain the forecasts are. Instead, do you want to get 170 basis points over? By the way, we pay more in investment grade than you guys in the US. Well, you should. Really? <laughs> yeah, better better. Better quality, by the way. Better quality investment. Oh, better... pish posh, pish posh. Yeah, no. We... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's about liquidity. Well, you guys have also had a, a boatload of issuance this year too, which maybe there's a little bit of digestion issues going on. But uh, no, but better quality in general. We used to pay less until this, you know, Putin-related commodity sell-off happened. So now we pay 25, 30 basis points more. That's one on investment grade. Uh, we now pay, interestingly, like about 4.1% yield. Shocker. Uh, good old days, it used to be 70, 80 basis points, especially when the bond was at minus 60. Uh, so now, do you, do you want to be, you know, one and a half, two percent bond or do you want to be 4% IG? I think the answer is quite straightforward, given that overall wall in investment grade is much lower. Even if you go into high yield, uh, high yield now pays about 7.8% in Europe. And just to just one more contrast for our listeners, unlike the US credit asset classes, which are really long, I mean, the US investment grade is, I mean, you can tell me, it's like, what, seven? 7. Yeah, a little 8. over seven years. You're talking mid duration? Low, mid low, yeah, 7.8 7. duration. And uh, high yield is about what, four and a half? Uh, no, I don't even think it's that long. I think we're just a smidge over four, but... Bridge over four. While here, we are at like five, 5.1, 5.2 investment grade. And high yield is about 
you know, 3.7, 3.6, I mean, depending on issuance and uh, yields at that time. So we're distinctly shorter and we do pay more. So whether it is in spread or in the raw yield sometimes. So in that case, I don't think uh, European fixed income investors don't have much of a choice. You got to be in credit. So given that we had a pretty sanguine forecast for the year, uh, we did predict like about a three plus percent uh, IG total return. It's delivered about two and a half. I believe that will overshoot. I am probably not bullish enough, despite all of you guys calling me too optimistic. <laughs> that, that's on that's on the total return side. The excess return side, we got about half a percent till now. I think we got about one and a half percent more to go excess return because the carry is quite hefty now. On the high yield side, the total return is you know just under three till now. We predicted like a five and a half. And on the excess return side, it is like just under two. We predicted about three and a half. So, you know, we got about double. So uh, around the same left for the rest of the year. So I am, as you say, I'm definitely more sanguine than <laughs> than many. Right. And I don't it sounds like we're both price. looking for volatility over the final three quarters of the year, right? Because it, yeah. if, we, if we've gotten half of, half to... 90% of the expected total returns yeah. uh, through most of these asset classes. And you've still got, as you say, seven and a half months left, right? So, yeah. Uh, or eight and a half months left. I don't know. Am I doing my math right? Yeah, eight and a half. Yeah. No, seven and a half. No, no eight, eight, and a half. Half. eight and a half. Eight and a half. <laughs> we should probably edit that piece out where we can't count the months in the year. But um... <laughs> so, uh, to close out, US or Europe in credit? So if there is a global credit fund, where should they be? I think I know my answer. Well, I mean, I, I you obviously know. I mean, listen, you're. I mean, if you just take our views, then obviously you're going to tilt Europe, right? I think risk adjusted, you're probably, you know, probably not that dissimilar as well, right? Um, I, I think it's the, and also the FX, right? If you look at the FX, given that the ECB is going to hike at the minimum twice, and there is a QT program going on unlike the Fed. So probably the FX also has something to add to the returns. Mm -hmm. So there is yeah. that component as well on top of credit returns. Yeah, uh, that's fair. I, I think in the US, the the, the toggle is, is less about global versus do you just want to be in a money market? Yeah, So, <laughs> which is what most of uh, retail is doing, isn't it? Uh, no, that's absolutely true, right? And that and that makes sense, right? Because you're you're making a lot of the funds are delivering over four percent. So right. why not? The problem is is obviously the sustainability of it, right? So if if the Fed does turn tail, then that four percent disappears in a hurry. And I remember all too fondly my zero point zero 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 one percent interest, which is still probably better than what you did in Europe. But uh, anyway, yeah. So that concludes. Our uh, podcast for this time, it was quite an engaging conversation. Uh, Noel, thank you. So uh, welcome uh, uh, to this uh, to this stream regularly. And uh, we are going to have an episode at the end of the month on the high yield survey, uh, the Q2 survey with George Flynn. And uh, please visit our dashboards, B-A-S-T-R-T-E for Europe and B-A-S-T-R-T-N uh, for the US. Thanks again. Thank you.